closing the curtains here just with this pulley. This is John Corliss. He's come across a story from the west of Ireland. It just predates my own time reporting there and it's a tale well worth telling. So we've some posters here of upcoming events. John is the manager of a community centre. We have Tommy Tiernan playing here. We have Deirdre O'Kane, we have the Saw Doctors. It's right in the middle of the town of Clare Morris in County Mayo. We have school musicals, the drama festival, and we have lots of meetings. In wintertime, we run night classes. Some time ago, Clare Morris Town Hall was celebrating its 50th anniversary. It was built in 1969 as a community hall and was known as Clare Morris Town Hall. John went back through the old records. It was the dance hall and it was a courthouse and it had many other incarnations down through the years. That not only has the town hall been known as a venue for concerts, dances, classes and get-togethers. It's also known as the place that someone tried to blow up. Twice. The bomb was planted at the corner of the 40,000 pound town hall built just three years ago. The blast cracked the walls, blew in the windows and blasted slates off the roof. We lived just up at the corner and the windows in the bedroom were all broken, do you remember? We jump out of our beds with fright. I was just checking out some alarm clock calls to call some people that wanted early rising and uh, the next thing I was sort of blown off the seat. It was a bomb and Clamar's been on the television like was just amazing. It was a big explosion. There was no warning, but uh, if they're listening or if they will be looking in, I would appreciate if they're going to do the damn thing and that they let us know. <laughs> From RTE Documentary on One, this is Dancing Nancy. So why was this, this ordinary town community centre, why was it targeted by bombers? Well, when John Corliss asked around, he found that it was because of the town hall being a dance venue. It was bombed because it was so successful. And that was obvious from the very first night when the hall opened. I think there was, from memory, around 17 or 1800 people. At that time, there was no problem with crowds or health and safety or anything. There was no issue with anything that time. Just let them in, get as many as you can in the door. That's Seamus Gallagher. Back in 1969, he was a young insurance salesman with an eye to the music business. And Seamus also knew how to turn a pound. And the town hall committee gave him a part-time job booking bands for dances. And he took it on with gusto and enthusiasm. I had to drive to Dublin myself and get the different bands to play. Like the Miami Show Band. Gina Dale Hayes and the Champions. Big Tom and the Mainliners. So basically I had to move around and I had to go and meet those people and persuade them to play in the venue here. And the bands came. They came not just because of Seamus's charm, they came because of the size of Claremorris Town Hall. Picture 2,000 people in Claremorris and Town Hall on a Sunday night. It was brilliant. In the economics of the live music business at the time, bands got a percentage of the takings on the door. Typically they were paid 60% of the box office. So 60% of a bigger hall is more money to be going home with and that was a big motivator for the bands. 
And a bigger take meant big name bands and for the Clare Morris Town Hall, big crowds. They would come from Castlebar, they were coming from Ballina, they were coming from Chum, Galway and Roscommon. At one stage I had six and eight buses lined up in the square on a night. By November 1972, Clare Morris was one of the biggest Sunday night venues in the country. The loan taken out to build the town hall had been paid off and things were going great until five o'clock in the morning of Tuesday the 7th of November. The first bomb went off at the far end of the hall there. That's where the billiard room was and it was just outside the window. The blast cracked the walls, blew in the windows and blasted slates off the roof. A room in the hall also housed a school for handicapped children and this was of course suspended today. We were having the breakfast and I was on the pan, frying, and the children came back with the news. The town hall is bombed. And of course I dropped the pan on the cooker and dashed out the door off for the town hall see what's happened. There was no warning given before the bomb went off. The blast was heard by a telephone operator, Peter Cullinan, in the nearby post office. He rushed the Gardaí and firemen to the scene. Because it was 1972, the immediate assumption of most people was that the bomb was connected to the troubles in the north and the loyalist paramilitary group, the UVF. If this was a UVF bomb, and I use the word if advisedly, then it's the deepest incursion the organisation has made into the Republic. Clare Morris is more than 100 miles from the border. And but elsewhere in Clare Morris, one detective wondered if the bombing had something to do with the young man who booked the bands at the hall, Seamus Gallagher. This detective came down to my house and he was kind of insinuating to me first, was I the cause of this bomb? John Corliss, who has researched the events of the time, says the detective had a theory about Seamus. Seamus was very good at his job and it was a very competitive business. And the detective wondered... Had he maybe crossed the line? Had he fallen foul of the manager or management of some band? And had they decided to send him a message by bombing the venue? And I got fucking thick with him. I said, are you trying to insinuate to me that I am responsible for something here? I am telling you, I said, who did it? Nancy Murphy and Kong did that. End of story. And he shrugged me off, he says. That's not true. And how, how were you that sure? I was sure of it, there was no one else. Knew straight away. And they, they thought it might be paramilitaries and they thought it might be... I, I knew well it was Nancy Furphy. I said she was a bad joke and I knew I should do it. This is Kong in County Mayo, where Nancy Murphy lived. She's dead 11 years now, but as John Corliss found out when he went asking, Nancy is well remembered in the village. We still miss her, like, running up and down the street here. You know, she was just one of the characters of the village. Small woman, short brown hair. She was always going, going, going. Spoke very fast. She'd run up and down with her arms folded like this, running up and down the street. The reason she was always in a hurry, running up and down the village, was because Nancy had two shops, one at either end of the main street. Everything was sold in there, from food to fishing rods to knickknacks, anything, everything and nothing. And when she was done up, she looked like Audrey Hepburn. 
seriously. She used to wear the most wonderful clothes when she was done up. And then you'd see her on the street here. She'd be running up and down. She might have a bag of coal on her back and a drum of gas. She was a tough yoke now, I'll tell you that. Strong arms from lifting all the boxes and everything. She'd make a joke out anything. Or she'd fit for, or she'd fit for anyone. She ran up the street here one day and one of the elderly gentlemen was on the street and she said, I'm not wearing a bra today. I have only been excited. And he said, but you haven't much to show anyway. What do you mean, she said, if you had a boil as big as one of them on the top of your nose, you know it was there. <laughs> so quick wit, it just rolled off her tongue. I want, and I want a postcard. There's actually some film around of Nancy Murphy. A few years before her death, the documentary filmmaker Shea Mary Doyle was making a programme about the famous film The Quiet Man, which was shot in Calm. When he took his camera out, one of the first people he came across was Nancy Murphy. She was in one of her shops showing tourists Quiet Man souvenirs. What I really want... This is my brother, here, look, okay. this one here. That's him in this one, there. You keep away from my sister Mary-Kate. She's not for the likes of you. Where I come from, we don't talk about our women folk in saloons. Nancy's family hardware shop had been converted into Cohan's pub in the Quiet Man movie. Put up your fists! I'm not gonna fight you, Dan. But I'm gonna fight you, then. And as she told filmmaker Shea Mary Doyle, some of the locals spun yarns to the movie tourists. Then there's a fella going around there in the jumping car. And he was telling me that he had Americans one day in the jumping car. They said to him, oh, this is, this is like the pony and the trap in the quiet man. Oh, this is the pony and the trap in the quiet man. This is the same one that was used in the quiet man. You know, and I said, did you believe him? I said, how could a horse live 50 years? He said, that couldn't be the same horse. Horses only live 20 years. But like, they believed the man, you know. They, so I think they come to they come here just to hear the Irish people tell them lies. I really think they do. They enjoy it, like, you know. In the Quiet Man documentary, Nancy demonstrated how the director, John Ford, had taught John Wayne how to walk like a man. And what way does he walk? And she walked up and down the street in front of Shay's camera, showing that originally, as she says, John Wayne was too light on his feet. John Ford taught him how to walk. You see, he, he was awful light on his feet, so John Ford taught him to pretend he was going around the corner all the time. Do you know what I mean? To get him to walk, because he's an unusual way of walking. Yeah. He's, you know, that size feet, six. A woman would take bigger feet. You watch it now, and the film. I have to close now, because I have to go, I have to go somewhere, you know? But you know, that's okay. the miracle. Yeah. Bye. Anyway, getting back to the bombing of the Clare Morris Dance Hall, why would the young entertainment manager there, Seamus Gallagher, tell the detective that the bomb was placed by Nancy Murphy? Well, that's because Nancy was above all else a businesswoman from a business family. 
My father was a butcher and my mother ran a shop, selling everything from a needle to a kitchen sink. And one of Nancy's businesses was entertainment. That's, that's the dance you built years ago. Nancy owned a building at the end of the village, which was a dance hall, and it operated on Sunday nights as well. Did you no. ever dance in the hall? Oh, I did years ago, yes. Oh, years ago, yeah. What was it like? Lovely. Lovely hall, yeah. Oh, lovely. She was a great businesswoman. She set this up at 19 years old. Oh. I know. Hall, yeah. yeah. She started building this when she was 19. John Corliss, the manager of Clare Morris Town Hall, is standing outside the building that used to be Nancy's dance hall. And I can see straight away that the building is smaller than Clemoris Town Hall. It would hold about half the amount of dancers that Clemoris Town Hall would. Considering that the two halls put on dances on the one night, even if Nancy Murphy had the same band, they would only get half the amount of patrons. That's all they could get in through the doors. Dancers paid seven and six or ten shillings to go in. And bands would have a person on the door with a clicker counting the people going through the door and they would know how many had come in. So the size of the hall mattered to the band. So the opening of Claremorris Town Hall clearly would have had serious commercial implications for Nancy and for her hall. Nancy's dance hall started to lose money and she decided to pursue a unique marketing strategy and that was to blow the rival and more successful Clamoris Hall out of business. As you know, there were lots of bombers and plenty of bombs around in 1972, mostly up north. But Nancy didn't have to go that far to find someone to bomb Clamoris Town Hall. Galway, he used to go there drinking and she asked him would they do something to blow this place up because she was losing money. And she asked them, would they do that? This is Tula. She lives in Dublin and is the widow of a man named Frank Conran. Frank was Irish and Tula is from Cyprus. I'm Greek Cypriot. I met uh, Frank in London. That was in the late 1950s. Tula didn't speak much English and Frank didn't speak Greek. But when he proposed, she said yes. And we got married then in July. 1958. I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for him because he was very quiet in himself and very lonely. Now we got married and none of his family came over. Shortly after they were married, Frank hurriedly left for Ireland. A couple of his friends, I think, were going to rob a bank or something but it wasn't successful, and they threw the gun and the, the bullets into a ditch that they were building a block of apartments or something. The men went the next day walking, and they found the gun there, and also the police were after them because their fingerprints were on the gun. But I didn't know anything about that until we came here. When we got married first, and when I had the first two children, you know, we were very happy. But Frank Conran was a drinker and was unable to hold down jobs. We had no money. It was very hard to manage. Frank also started to have affairs. The first woman was in Galway. And through this woman in Galway, Frank met Nancy. 
And she asked him, would they blow this place up? Years before I met him, he joined the parachute regiment, and he knew how to do the bombs. So he said, yes, we do it. Whatever Frank knew about bombs, his handiwork that night in November 1972 left the hall standing. This morning, an engineer and members of the local community association inspected the building, and afterwards it was said there had been no great structural damage. John Corliss heard from the local engineer, Michael Reedy. It was well built, John. It was well built. And was there any residual damage? Was there any damage around the area? Was there, was there... Oh, no. It was amateurish. And maybe it was meant to be amateurish. That bomb may just have been designed to send a message to the punters that Clare Morris was a dangerous hall to go dancing in. Now, people were afraid and all that. That was Seamus Gallagher's worry, the young man who booked the bands for Clare Morris. Everybody in the town got behind the town hall, being a community hall, and did voluntary work right through four or five days and nights to get it up and running and to defy any person or any people who were trying to close it down. And believe it or not, the following Sunday night, the dance that was to be held in the hall, we held it. The community getting behind the dance hall wasn't just a form of local pride and defiance. As John Corliss says, the Clare Morris Town Hall Sunday night dances were making an economic difference to the town in the early 1970s. The profits of the hall, because it was community owned, were reinvested in community groups in the town, in sporting organisations and businesses. The hall was a kind of a leader company of its time. The swimming club were working very hard to try and get a swimming pool in the town. They came to us and discussed it and we said, yes, well, we'll certainly give them £20,000. It was a lot of money, big money. The range of grants from the town hall dances was wide, from local factories to local families in difficulty, as committee member Tommy Higgins recalls. You know, there's such a one who deserve money. What sums of money were they giving out? Was it a fiver or was it £20 or was it £100? Uh, no, and they'd give up to a couple on their own. Yeah, very good. So, with the help of the local community, the Sunday night dances got back up and running. Gradually, over maybe a few weeks or a few months, it came back to what it was before that. And by the early 70s, the money was really pouring in. Big crowds, and we just... Two people go in there and just take in the money and throw it in on the ground. It was all loose pounds, you know, mm-hmm. counted later. That's Robert Cosgrave. He was one of the volunteers on the door. While the Clare Morris Town Hall dances were going well, Nancy Murphy's Kong dances were not. And she decided to act. Nancy thought she'd have another go at stopping the music in Clare Morris. This time, it was to be St. Patrick's Day, 1973. And she went back to the same man who had placed the bomb the previous November, Frank Conran. I couldn't go into my bedroom. Frank's widow Tula remembers Frank's instructions to her in their house in Dublin the day before. And he told me not to let the children go into the bedroom because there was something on the bed that he didn't want anybody to see. It's very dangerous to go there. I was terrified until he took a blanket wrapped it up, put it in the car. He told me he was going fishing 
And would I make some sandwiches and a flask of soup? And uh, I made the soup and the sandwiches, and they went off. I came back in the morning and wanted to listen to the news. They listened to the news, and then I heard them laughing. And I went in, and I said, what's going on? Why are you laughing? And they said, ah, there was something. And I caught a little bit of the news. This is the second explosion to damage the town hall come community centre here in Clare Morris. The first explosion occurred last November, and it took £3,000 to repair the hall on that occasion. And it's estimated that at least as much damage, if not more, was caused in today's explosion. And I said, that's not a laughing matter, you know. They had another cup of tea. While Frank and his sidekick were drinking tea in Dublin, the town hall people in Clare Morris were in crisis. It was the morning of St. Patrick's Day and one of the year's biggest dances was due to take place that night. But again, the damage was slight. Tommy Higgins was there on the morning of St. Patrick's Day, 1973. It was a kind of a... The slaughterhouse up there in the corner of Blanca Gilligan's. There was a slaughterhouse there, a butcher shop down the town, and the slaughterhouse up there in the corner. So, was there, was there any damage done then to any of the buildings or nearby here? No. And the roof of the of the toilets there is what was was yeah, damaged. Yeah, that was all. That's it. So, how many townspeople helped in in the clear up oh, that day? Everybody, the whole crowd up from the town. Everyone came up to help. We all got in and cleaned the place up. Uh, there was a dance held that night in St Patrick's Night, 17th of March, after the bombing. This time, there was no mention of loyalist terrorists from the north. In fact, it became clear quite quickly who had planted the bomb and why. In the newspapers, the Gardaí said it was because of good police work that the bombers were caught, but there were no more details. But Frank Connoran's widow Tula says it all came down to Frank's sidekick, a man named Danny Byrne. They had arranged to burn the car, set fire to it. But Danny Byrne didn't. He went and got his girlfriend and they were driving up the mountains and he went through a flock of sheep and killed three or four sheep. And the farmer had seen them, got the number of the car. And there was a chase then from the mountains as far as the north side. And they got him. And he he's the one that spilled the names, set the names, whoever was with him. Danny revealed Frank and Nancy's names. The police called here, searched the house, arrested him, and I didn't know why, and they wouldn't tell me anything. And it was afterwards I really found out what really happened, and I was disgusted with them. Nancy and Frank both came to trial in the autumn of 1974. I couldn't believe it. I was never in court. It was the Special Criminal Court in Green Street. Tula, Frank's wife at the time, came to court with a piece of coal in her pocket. Somebody said to me, if you find a piece of coal, pick it up for good luck. And they searched me going in and he said, do you want it back? I said, no, keep it. There was two prison officers beside me and they told me 
not to get excited, not to throw anything at the judge or anything. I said, why should I throw anything at anybody, I said. Connacht Telegraph, Thursday, October 1974. Miss Anne Murphy, aged 37, of Main Street, Cong County Mayo, pleaded guilty to two charges of causing explosions at the Claremorris Town Hall. Mr Seamus Sarahan, defending, said that Murphy found her business was running down and, in a casual conversation with a friend, a joke was made about setting fire to the hall in Claremorris. From this germinated the idea of the explosions. Mr John Murphy, brother of the accused, said that since the explosions his sister had been living in a nightmare world of sleepless nights. She had visibly lost a lot of weight and deeply regretted her action. The Western People, Saturday, October 1974. Psychiatrist Dr Patrick McCarthy said Frank Conran was, for some years, in an orphanage and developed a hate for authority. He formed the opinion that Conran was a man who could be easily manipulated by anybody with a good story. He said, I believe Conran is a schizo-psychopath, a person who really did not know the difference between right and wrong, a condition due to his early upbringing. Irish Examiner, November 1974. Dancehall owner jailed for five years. Anne Murphy of Main Street Kong pleaded guilty and on whose behalf a cheque for £6,000 was handed into court for compensation for the damage. The man she had hired to do the work for financial reward had already been sentenced by that court to five years for his part in the double bombings. The Irish Times, July 1977. A sentence of five years was imposed on Daniel Byrne, who was paid to drive from Dublin to Clare Morris with a bomb on the back seat. According to Mr Sorin, defending, the chief architect in the escapade was a Kong dance hall owner, Miss Nancy Murphy. He added, only a woman could think of such an amazing plot. I used to visit him every Saturday in the prison. I used to bring two of the children with me every Saturday, leave money there for him, bring his washing home. You do stupid things after, when you think of it as stupid, but it's done now. Tula says that Frank left prison in 1978. They separated and he eventually moved to Canada. Nancy was sentenced to Mountjoy Prison in Dublin, hundreds of kilometres and hours by car from Kong in County Mayo. But Nancy had family in Dublin, among them a cousin, Mary Columba. And I couldn't believe it. I think it was sort of glossed over at home. Mary Columba's daughter, Mairead, was in her late teens and she devoured the papers for news of the case from her mother's family. And then one day, my mother and father must have had some sort of a conversation but she said, I want to go and see Nancy to see if she's all right and how she's getting on. And she said, would you come with me? And I said, I will. So in we went to Mountjoy. Never been in it. My mother was nervous. I was nervous. I've never been in a place like that before. We were nearly clinging on to one another. I can't remember if we had to go through any security. I don't remember that. 
I don't think we did. I think we just walked in and there was a corridor. Somebody asked, I'm here to see Nancy. Oh, I'll get Nancy for you now. The prison officer was like a holiday camp. Nancy came along and she was, oh, hello, right, this and that and the other. We sat in a room and my mother asked her, how are you getting on? Oh, they're very nice here. I'm getting on really well, really, really well. She was in her ordinary clothes. I thought she'd be in, but she was in her ordinary clothes, you know. And the prison, I saw the prison officers seemed to be very nice. Oh, Nancy this and Nancy that. Oh, thank you, Marie, and all of this. They were all in first name terms. And there were, it wasn't gloomy. They were smiling, you know. And whereas we were probably shocked or and traumatised by... But it was like it wasn't a prison. My mother said, I just wanted to know, are you short of anything or would you need anything and are you OK? She said, yes, sure, I'm fine. I'm doing my knitting and this sort of thing. And that was it. Nancy didn't serve the full five years and when she got out, people in Kong told John Corliss that she had picked up a new way of making money. When she was in jail, she was making baskets, weaved baskets and all of that. And when she came out, she actually sold some baskets. I had one actually, once Mom passed away, she actually, I had one of the baskets. They were done with um, they that hard plastic. There was a flower on the bottom, it was a flowery base, and it had kind of yellowy weaved in it. It was lovely. That skill inside, she did she? Inside and she came out and she sold them. Although everyone knew that Nancy had been in prison, it wasn't talked about. Mairead Holmes says her mother, who was Nancy's cousin, never mentioned it to her. Oh, no, no, no. She didn't, no. There was nothing like that. It was all very superficial. I think my mother said uh, once to me when I did ask her, a moment of madness was how she classified it as. Or that maybe something psychiatrically wrong or something like that. I just don't know. You know? Why do you think she did it? Uh, she did it because there was a bit of greed in her, I'd say. Uh, she was silly. She did it. She was silly. Why yeah. do you think she bombed it? <clears throat> kind of greed. Greed. She didn't want the whole thing. She was doing better than her health for you. That's what happened. Like, greed. You know, greed is nowadays. That's what happened. Oh, oh yeah, it was greed, yeah. John Corliss, the Clare Morris Town Hall manager, takes issue with the word greed. Maybe I'm biased because I'm in the same business Nancy was in, but that business is filling an entertainment venue every week. Um, I understand her, I understand the anxiety, and it's not excusable, obviously, to go bombing a competitor. But in hungrier times, you made your money where you could and you hung on to it. Otherwise, it was the immigrant boat. There was no business advisors at the time. There were no marketing strategists. You couldn't go into your bank and sit down and talk to them about a marketing plan. You just had to survive on your own. So she did what she thought would work and she thought was right. It was obviously wrong. John also says that while Nancy was first and foremost a businesswoman, by opening a dance hall in the 1950s, she was providing a much-needed social service. Venues like Claremorris Town Hall and... Nancy Murphy's Hall in Kong played a very important part in keeping the population in the area. People went to those halls, they met somebody, they shifted them, they went off with them, they dated them the following week and the following week and the following week and eventually some of them got engaged 
and they got married. But they found partners in those halls and as a result of that, they stayed in that area, most of them anyway. Whereas if those halls weren't there, those people might have gone to Galway or Dublin and met somebody there and they would have been lost then to rural Ireland. In Kong, the dance hall building never regained its former Sunday night glory. It's now a popular souvenir shop. Frank Conran returned from Canada and died in 2005. He and Tula were never reunited and she continues to live in the home in West Dublin where she reared their six children. And Frank's sidekick in the operation, Danny Byrne? Well, we haven't been able to find out any more about Danny. Nancy went on to open a supermarket and bought a van and turned it into a travelling shop with which she delivered groceries and other supplies out to the remoter parts of Connemara. And a lot of people depended on her. Check to see, were the old people, were they okay? Was there something wrong? I mean, she'd go up the mountains to the highest places up in Kilicheon, where there's very little up there, and it's absolutely dead in the winter, and all you can see is the snow-covered mountains, but Nancy would make it up in the van. She called to a lot of houses, you know, when she was uh, calling to old people. That was the news then for them. People were fond of her now. Quite a few people were quite fond of her. You know, it's a big loss. The old travelling shop is a big loss. Oh, the girl that I love Her name is Nancy She's small and she's neat She's the girl I do fancy And she'd have her little shorts and her T-shirt on her in the summer. She looked like a 15-year-old, except she was an 80-year-old. I met her one night while out Marky dancing I knew she was nice All the last they were glancing In her personal life, she never married, but she did find romance. I was fishing on the river in Ashford one day and I met himself and herself checking into the castle. And hardly recognised her. I thought it was Audrey Hepburn and her boyfriend. And she did look well now, in all fairness, but she was definitely in her late 60s at that stage. <laughs> he was a lot younger than her. A lot younger than her. But I suppose if you reverse the situation, people wouldn't look at it as kind of strange, really. I kissed her that night by the end of the house. Then she took off her shoes and crept in like a mouse. Nancy Murphy died in 2011. We could tell you her age or we could work it out, but it's not polite to talk about a woman's age, so we won't do it now either. John Corliss and the story of the woman who bombed a ballroom. The documentary on one, Dancing Nancy, was narrated by Sean O'Rourke. It was produced by John Corliss and Ronan Kelly. After the programme was first broadcast, a man called James Tracy contacted the documentary on one. He said that he was the boyfriend referred to at the end of the documentary. Producer Ronan Kelly travelled to meet James to hear his memories of Nancy. James is from Scariff in East Clare and very proudly so. We're living here in Scariff. We have credit shown of doctor's surgery. We have an ambulance depot, of a library. He's got a variety of businesses. He organises religious pilgrimages, he's got a dating site and he's a professional photographer. Dry stock, dry stock. And he helps out on the family farm. 100 acres. James met Nancy, or Anne as he knew her, in 2002. She answered a personal ad he'd put in the Sunday World. 
Back then, James was in his mid-thirties and Anne or Nancy was in her sixties. For their first date, James travelled to Kong and he and Nancy first set eyes on each other in the evening time. It was kind of dark when you saw her at first. It was, yeah. So you thought she looked well? Yeah, she wasn't too bad, like, wasn't too bad. And were you good looking? <laughs> so was I am, yeah. <laughs> First time we met is a favourite memory of mine. Then she gave me the painting then for a present gift. And she gave me money for my birthday as well. Say time changes all it pertains to. But your memory is stronger than time. On your very first date? Yeah. She gave you a painting? She did, yeah. A full tank picture going home. And what were you doing at the time yourself? I uh, showed in Limerick. Okay. And was she helping you with your fees? She was, yeah. And James was very successful as a student. Can you show me this here? His hallway is full of framed qualifications. Okay. That's in UCD, that's my graduation in maths and law. That's my degree there, maths and law. It's in Latin. Okay. In Latin. That's my degree from Limerick. That's my uh, law and accounting degree. That's my master's from Liverpool. Maths and laws. Nancy helped James buy expensive textbooks for his law degree. He has one signed by two men. One, a star of the criminal courts. The other, a star of 1980s RTE TV. To Mr Tracy, I wish you good luck in your chosen career, Patrick McEntee. Do you remember him, did you? Yeah. He's senior counsel. He's had a serious murder case than that. Yeah. Gosh, and what's this one here? What does this That's say? That's Derek Davis, not E. I mentioned him in Scarab, I showed him in the book. And he signed it as well. Signed as well, yeah. <laughs> we could sit on the shore, we could just be friends, we could jump in. James has plenty of stories of Nancy's generosity. On one occasion, he wanted to buy a cigar in Ashford Castle. He didn't want to break 20 euro and asked if she had any change. She took 200 euro out of her handbag and told him to buy all the cigars he wanted. James recalls that Nancy's handbag was always full of cash. 20,000 euro in her handbag all the time. 20,000 euro? At least, yeah, in her handbag. All cash for cash transactions. There was nothing in the books. Somebody said you got a Rolex. Did you get a Rolex from her? No, I gave her a Rolex. You gave her a Rolex? I did, yeah. And, to, and why did you give it to her? I had two of them at the time. Real Rolexes? Oh, there, yeah. Like worth about €10,000 each? I know, they were 2000 Not quite sure what's going on But all day through and all night long I've been thinking about and were you romantic? Was it a romantic relationship? Not really, no. So you were kind of companions? Yeah. I've been thinking about well, so, like, you were getting out of the, the relationship. You were you were getting money and a full tank of petrol. Yeah. And what was she getting? Getting my company, it was. Well, she ended up ringing her occasionally a lot. Did you? She was good to talk to, like. She was not to talk to. Yeah. And what would she tell you? Well, on one occasion, she was in court for having selling cigarettes to children. And she pleaded not guilty. 
But the, the girls couldn't pin it on her because the witness they had in the case, they couldn't pin it on the day he said he sold they got the cigarettes off them. And do you believe that that happened, that she sold cigarettes to minors? Oh, she was telling me she was owning it. Did she? She did, yeah. And did she have any shame about it? She said that she said that she no problem selling cigarettes to children, but alcohol or selling to the problem. And then, did she talk to you about the the dance hall and the problem with Claire Morris? No. Did she not? No. When was the first you heard about that? On the radio about a month ago. You're joking me. Yeah. The first you heard of it was when we put on the program. Yeah. Were you surprised when you heard it? I was actually, yeah. But um, she was hungry for money. Nancy kept an eye on the price of everything. James recalls them going to a Bond movie in Galway and Nancy turning to the person beside them to ask them how much they'd paid for their popcorn. Because she, she was selling popcorn in her, in her night love. James remembers that making money and wealth was extremely important for Nancy. There's a lot of money and wealth and more money and making more money. That was a kind of an obsession then, wasn't it? It was, yeah. My friend met her on Killaloo. He died since. But she said, I'm in hurry home now. I collect money from my farm, she said. He said, for what, he said. So I can make a cinder roof in my, my shop, she said. For what, he said. So I can make my shop bigger. For what? So I can make my pub bigger. For what, he said. So I can make more money. For what, he said. So there's no answer to getting more and more and more and more. So getting greedier and greedier and greedier. While we're chatting, James's mother, Bridie, comes into us with a tea tray. I have made some tank sandwiches for you. And I had the milk there and I have sugar there. Bridie met Nancy. When James was going out with her, she visited Scarif. She was very nice. I thought she was a nice person. She was a great woman to do things, you know. She was great. She was going to get a boutique in uh, Kong and all this kind of thing, you know. Yeah, she was was nice. I liked her. I did, yeah. I liked her as a person, but uh, I didn't like her. I think she was too old for him. For James. Yeah. And how did you break up? We didn't break up, it was just, just uh, I was in Liverpool at the time, you see. Doing the university? Yeah. And so what was, do you remember the last time you spoke? But Friday before I went to Liverpool. And what did you say to each other? I said, I'm going to Liverpool and I'm, I'll come back and see you, I thought. Okay, and then when you came back, what happened? When I came back, um, when I came back, I rang, I rang the number and there was no reply. The phone cut off. So I said there's something wrong here, I said. So I rang the manager of Afro Castle and he said she passed away. Mm. And how did you feel when you heard that? Well, I was fine to the spot in one sense. I I, going, I, I miss I miss going going to Kong now at the moment even. It's nice to go at Christmas time to go up there and hang out there. Mm. Oh, the girl that I love her name is Nancy, she's small and she's neat, she's the girl I do fancy. And when you came back from Liverpool, did you have thoughts that maybe the two of you would get back together again? I did actually, yeah. Did you? I did, yeah. God, you would have made a power of money. <laughs> Between the two of you, you would have made a huge amount of money, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would, yeah. What, um, you can't bring with you. No, what does it to say, no hitch in a hearse? No hitch in a hearse, no. No pocket in a shroud? Was she a sad person? No, she, she was happy. Was she? I said she was, yeah. 
What did you think when you think back now? Were you glad to have met her? Well, it's an experience. I enjoy my time with her when I was there. She's the girl I do fancy I met her one night While out Marky dancing I knew she was nice All the lads they were glancing Oh I knew she was nice All the lads they were glancing 